Welcome to the Science in Sport Industry Insight Series podcast, which is, of course, brought to you by our partners, Science in Sport. My name is John Porch. I'm the editor at the Leaders Performance Institute, and today I am joined by our host, James Morton, the Director of Performance Solutions at Science in Sport. James, welcome back to the show. Hello, John. How are you doing? Nice to see you again. Yeah, nice to see you too. And I know that you share my excitement in speaking to our very special guest today. Ben Williams, who is the Head of Integrated Performance at the Ineos Grenadiers Cycling Team and Britannia Sailing Team. So Ben, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? All right, gents. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm really good today. Thanks. Most of all, thanks for having me. We're delighted to have you. And James, perhaps about any further ado, why don't you take it away with the first question? Yes, yeah, sure. Well, first of all, again, welcome Ben to the show. As you mentioned, John, it's great to have Ben because Ben's a a leader in performance that I've long admired for the last few years, got to know him professionally, but also personally. And before we get into today's talk, really, which is on innovation and sport, which I think everyone is interested in who works in sport, the role of innovation. I wonder, Ben, because you've worked in so many different sports and of course, you've also had a background in the military as well. If you can kind of just introduce yourself to the podcast and your background. Good job of the, the first bit. Yeah, my name is Ben Williams. Um, I work for Ineos across a couple of their sports, sailing and cycling. To go back to where it all started, from I joined the military as a young lad, well over 20 years ago now. <laughs> Feels like an awful long time. I guess what that did at its time, I didn't really have much direction or I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And I was a, bit, a little bit lost. And what that did is it gave me purpose. It really accelerated my immersion with diverse populations and my experience, not only just with learning about people and process, but also like ever-changing landscapes and some unique challenges that I had to take on as you know as a as a sprightly young chap. So I guess it wasn't your normal entry into sport, but I think it did give me some unique perspective on how to approach challenges and how to. How to integrate with people. So yeah, when I when I left the military, I, re- I really wanted to pursue a, a career in sport, and that had its own challenges because I didn't come from a normal tertiary education model like university or college, university, masters, etc. I got an awful lot of well, not even a rejection letter, really, just silence. I, I had it for a long, long time. But I, I guess one thing the military does give you is behavioural perseverance, which I think is a very important trait in sport, whether you're an athlete or whether you're a practitioner. I think we all know the environment isn't like your normal nine to five. And with 20 odd thousand graduates a year, it's not that easy to make it into high performance. And in spite of all of that, you know, I, I was able to make it. And I think that comes back to behavioral perseverance and approaching challenges in a way that people see as solutions driven. Although I wasn't getting to where I wanted to be, I, I started off with what I could do. Um, and that was, well, it, you know, it was personal training it was um, coaching competing myself across a few different sports I started working initially with like tennis populations like speed agility quickness uh, like under 16s all the way down to like five-year-olds who could barely hold a tennis racket but again they were all quite unique challenges that I had to learn very quickly how to adapt to the environment the parents the ch- you know how do you communicate with the athlete in front of you whether they're five or whether they're 16. And then after that, I, you know, I, I went through a whole stream of things. Like oh, I worked with the women's football team. I had my own triathlon team, an ultra ultra team. So that was good. So, you know, that provided me a, a source of income through coaching. I worked with some judo athletes, uh, masters and and juniors, with one one going on to win nationals, Europeans and worlds. So that was, that was quite a big stake in the ground in terms of the way we approached that project. Very much looking at the physiological component to her technical ability rather than just general conditioning 
you know, it was how did we match up her style of judo to the people she was fighting. And so we, we approached that slightly differently. But yeah, and then I went into motorsport with a young motorsport athlete, um, Dean Stoneman, who went on to win F2 and become a Red Bull development driver, having success in like GP3, GP2, uh, Renault 3.5 and IndyCar. Again, a complete change from like physiological combat field into technical sports. And how did you match the athlete with the technical component of, of the car? You know, we looked at braking, we looked at the G-forces, even like warm-ups. I think there wasn't many people doing cognitive warm-ups in the paddock when I first started. Yeah, probably, probably none at all. And whether it was right or wrong, didn't have much evidence base around it, but it all seemed like the right thing to do for that athlete and uh, and we had some pretty good engagement with, with some of the interventions we did I, I then picked up another technical sport which was Abu Dhabi ocean racing around the world with a mentor of mine a guy called Pete Cunningham he I basically followed Pete around the south coast trying to latch on to anything he was doing whether it was physiological testing or work it you know I, I was like the guy who wasn't really one of his students but I was there like knocking on his door and picking his brain and asking if I could go along to different training sessions. Uh, and that actually gave me a, an opening into Abu Dhabi where he was the lead and I ended up delivering a load of conditioning and on-ground stuff for him out in the UAE. That led me to working with Ben at Land Rover VAR. Uh, that was a really big step up for me. It was like a big lead in a team sport. Initially, I started there only to cover while they were recruiting. You know, they were recruiting like a PhD level leader in sport. But after a year and they'd still not found anybody and a lot of the team liked what I was doing with them. You know, I got that role full time. And eight years later, I'm, I'm still working with Ben. So I, I've been able to build that trust around the way we deliver a technical model, the way we deliver athletes, and the way we piece the athlete model together with the technical model. And then, you know, more recently last year, bridged into the Grenadiers, paralleling both camps, like in the integrated performance space, work, working with Dave and Rod and the Grenadier team. So that's the mini abstracted timeline. It's a fantastic background, Ben, because there's so many diverse experiences there. And actually, before we get into the role of innovation in sport, it, it makes me think about my own experiences in the last four weeks. As you know, I've been involved in a project with Ineos Sport, interviewing many different performance practitioners and leaders. But then I've also been reflecting on my own experience as an academic, where I'm teaching young practitioners. And the common thread, I think, is that many people enter one particular sport and actually spend a long part of their career in that sport. But where I think you're very different is the early part of your career with so many diverse experiences, which I think has now allowed you to approach new scenarios with a, a different perspective and a, and a well thought out rigorous perspective. Do you believe those diverse experiences have really helped you in your career? For a long time, I actually thought to the contrary, you know, I think the first kind of 10 years when you're slugging it out, driving around in a 500 pound Citroen Berlingo with pretty much everything I owned in the back. So I could go to triathlons. You know, I used to set up a tent at triathlons and do massage before and afterwards to pay for my own entry and, you know, and also host the guys on my, on my triathlon team. So like, you go from there and I, at one point I was looking at all my peers and, you know, I was going to conferences and stuff like that and everybody had been working in football for five, six, seven years or you know, they've been at the EIS for 10 years. I just really worried I was going to be this multidisciplinary project person. You know, I pick up a project, splice together the evidence base and the applied nature of it and come up with some robust solutions that work for the athlete and the organisation. 
But then the, the more I developed, the more I realized that actually the power in my background was the notion of what got you here won't get you there. Yeah. I think it's very easy to be so immersed in something that you can't see outside of your own bubble or just have a performance bias that you don't believe in something else. Yeah, well, look, I couldn't agree more. I think uh, many of the practitioners that I've spoken to in my career, they limit themselves because they don't look at other sports and there's so much to learn from other sports and how they approach different scenarios, really. Which brings me on to the concept of innovation because all of us who work in sport, for sure, we all think we're innovators. We always want to do something new and so on. So from your perspective, how do you define innovation? What does it look like for you and what does it feel like for you when you come to work every day? I think for me, intelligence or more specifically innovation isn't about what we know. Defining it for me would be challenging everything we know. Yeah. And I think that's very different about, you know, you're either trying to know something or you're trying to challenge everything that we, that we do know or that other people are telling you. If we just step back from that, there's probably a paper or an experiential story or dip. If I walked into any football club today, they tell me the way it should be done or their experience of it, same in any sport, really. I think if you want to be a true innovator, that you actually need to step back from that, zoom out and say, okay, that, that's great. I understand that. But that, that's now convention. That's not innovation. That's normalized. And even something that you innovate today could be convention in a year's time or a month's time, even a day's time, depending on who sees and how quickly they can mobilize. So for me, it's about challenging convention on a daily basis, updating yeah. our own belief systems, and more importantly, challenging our own belief system. There is a book by Marshall Goldsmith, What Got You Here Won't Get You There. Yeah. Um, and it's, a, it's basically a book about how successful people become more successful. Now, I don't think any of these books are, are a blueprint for practice, but I think this one does challenge the way you think about your own biases. And like you say, we would all say we're innovators, but that in itself, if we're thinking that, it means that we've already started to believe in our own belief system. And true innovators, I don't think, really believe in a belief system. They believe in a process rather than the current standard or the outcome. And if you believe in a process, I think you'll always get to innovation. Yeah. I could be wrong. I don't know. No, and I think that's a great way to put it, Ben. I mean, for me, innovation has always been about a better way of doing something. It has to be better than what's already done. And, and quite often in sport, you, you see people with new gizmos or new gadgets or new whatever, but it's not better than what's already out there. So, so it's not true innovation for me. Does that resonate with your experiences at all? Yeah, yeah, it definitely, it definitely resonates with me. And I think innovation can be multifaceted as well. Innovation could be getting the same thing done in a different way because you get yeah. more engagement. Equally, yeah. innovation can be completely breaking the mold and doing something that nobody's doing because you've seen a gap in the performance. Innovation could be the way that you work within a team. You know, you could get the same outcome, but you change the way that you deliver it because you generate like a culture where you're making small differences, big differences um, in different ways. So I don't think it has to be singular to have we made what we're doing today better. It could be you've done it differently and gained more engagement. Equally, yeah. it could be that you found a meaningful change. And that's going to change the landscape of the sport or, or whatever it is you're trying to achieve. Yes. Uh, I think understanding both of those two things and knowing that they're both as important as each other. So in your role as a leader, Ben, how do you foster a culture of innovation? And the reason why I ask that question is I think sometimes an innovative culture can be quite threatening and challenging to people because they perceive it as 
what I have to do something better all the time. Am I not already doing a good job? But a true innovative culture breeds that environment where you're always looking for improvements. But it's not easy to deliver and create that culture. So do you have any tips or techniques of how you can develop that culture in your staff that you manage? The culture of innovation is a really tough space. I'm certainly not an expert in it. People don't like change. You know, that's the saying, it exists because it's true. One thing I do believe is to harvest a culture of innovation, we need human engagement and we need collaboration because you can't, you can't do it on your own. And to create an environment where there's no such thing as a silly question or, you know, people can be humble uh, and not have their insecurities boil over so that they're not productive. I think that's really hard. I think an environment where peer review is normalized and yeah. collaborative working is the standard and challenge mindset is part of your daily practice. And to do that, you need, especially in leadership, you need to show that across the teams that, you know, the teams that I work with or, or, or manage or lead, one of the things that we try to do is make peer review completely normalized. It doesn't matter whether we're working on a physiology problem and you've got a physio or a race engineer, they should have the option to input on that because we're all part of this same organization. And sometimes having a zoomed out view might just lead to something that you can't quite pick out because you're too close to it. Equally, it does mean that you will get some silly questions. And if we all normalize that, then that's great because everybody learns from that process. And it means when it comes to your bit where you're the one zoomed in and somebody else is zoomed out, it becomes more normal for you to accept that. So I think having like these diverse groups of deep disciplined knowledge, but cross-disciplined collaboration really works, especially when it comes to like a peer review culture. Like one of the things yeah. we have with the Grenadiers is we don't send anything out from performance support unless it's been peer reviewed by a whole team. And it yeah. could be something being developed by ATOR, one of our physiologists, but equally Dan, our race engineer is looking at it because he's zoomed out and he might just provide a unique perspective. Uh, yeah. I think having that challenge mindset in that environment and fostering that, I need to do that as a leader as well. You know, if they challenge me, I need to just step straight back and go, okay, let's look at that. Even yeah. even if it doesn't matter whether you've seen it before, it doesn't matter whether you think there's a, a, a titanic load of evidence to support what you think it is, you've still got to step back and, and re-go over it and take your time and make sure that everybody's happy to move forward. And even if you don't agree, at least you're aligned. And if you have that environment, I do believe that innovation will become normal. Let's get into one of the sports that you work in, um, Britannia, and the, the challenge of the America's Cup, which many of our listeners probably won't be familiar with the America's Cup. So if you can just introduce that sporting challenge, if you like, but also describe how everyone involved in that team works together then to deliver that innovative culture. Yes. Yeah, so, so for those listeners who don't know anything about the America's Cup, it's a bit of a mad sport. It's actually a good read if you really want to get into it. It's the oldest trophy in international sport. It predates the Ashes, the Model Olympics. It's basically started in 1851 with a race around the Isle of Wight with a load of chaps racing boats around quickest. And since then, the sport has evolved to a very unique standpoint now, which is if you win it, you get to decide the rules of the next one. So it'd be like winning the Rugby World Cup and then saying, right, okay, guys, people, if we want to win the next one, what's our best chance of winning it? We've got four years. And then you might say, well, do you know what? We've got a fantastic women's team. Our under-18s are absolutely on fire. And we believe we're really good in open space. So you basically come back and say, okay, we're going to play with 10 people. We've got no decent kickers, so we're just going to get rid of field goals. And, you know, out of your 10 
people, you're going to have to have four females and one under 18. You'd really bias the rules towards what's going to help you win the next one. And not only do you have that ability, you also have like a year before you've got to communicate it to anybody else. You're already working on the solution while everybody else is treading water trying to figure out what's going on. So in that respect, it's totally, totally bonkers. And because of that, it changes every four years. So this is my third campaign. And so far, I've done a a foiling multi-hull catamaran, which was fixed in certain ways. Done a completely open 70-foot monohull, which was quite really open in other ways. And then this time is a second generation monohull, which is a bit more closed. You know, one of them had six people on board. The other one had 11 and this one's got eight. <laughs> so, and like the race course are changing, where your racing's changing. If you think about, if you just step back from that, every four years, you've got a unique challenge. You've got to yeah. be like, right, what's the gooey bit in the middle? How does a human interact with the machine? What does that look like biomechanically? What does it look like ergonomically? What does it look like in terms of how do we get alongside the boat? How do we fuel them? How heavy do they have to be? How fit do they have to be? How do they produce power? through hydraulics or direct wine there's so many variables and on day one you just get given this okay here's the rule you know and it it takes about a month just to read the rule and understand it and then you can start going right okay let's have a look at the technical model and then you've got to start working you've only got four years you know it'd be it'd be like a never existed sport coming onto the olympic roster tomorrow like tomorrow for four years time you've basically got to create the future and yeah. what it looks like you know how do you recruit athletes how do you train them in that respect it's really crazy but in terms of innovation it's, it's an amazing sport to be in because you cannot rely on anything you know every four years you've got to zoom all the way out to the satellite level and then reread the rule and then start that clinical reasoning process of coming back into a lie relying on a robust technical model i'm just thinking out loud i, I don't think there's any other sport in the world like that then surely <laughs> I've worked in a lot of sports and I think this one's the most bonkers just because it's got so many variables and the fact that if we won it, we could be one of the people saying, you know what, we're going to do this, this and this because we believe we're ahead of the game and somebody else might not be thinking about it. And then equally, innovation is huge. You know, we saw four years ago that the people who weren't the current owners of it, New Zealand, every looked at a rule and decided to create power one way and they looked at it and decided to create power another way. And that inevitably you know, the way they developed power didn't lead to them winning, but it did lead them to a more aggressive design, which enabled yeah. them to win, even though they were behind the curve. So in that case, it really is an innovation sport. And if you if you rely on convention for a minute, you've probably lost already in the America's Cup. So I guess that background, Ben, was really perfectly placed you to join another innovative team like the Ineos Grenadiers, formerly Team Sky, because look, I know from my own experiences, that's a team that is innovative and always looking to go faster. So how did you find the transition into cycling? Were you perfectly placed or was there any cultural differences that you had to get up to speed with quickly? I mean, first of all, the transition was hard. Coming from a, a very, very innovation-based sport that's got a lot of psychological security surrounding innovation, moving yeah. into a support where innovation is part of the culture but also not, you know, it's, it's polarized. There'll yes. be entities within cycling that are really innovation-based and very forward-thinking, very open-minded. And there's other parts that you walk into a discussion thinking that it'll be really open and actually it couldn't be more closed. It's not that your opinion isn't welcome, but there's just a cultural difference within those two sports. I think that one thing that really is similar is the way that you understand the performance gap. 
I think that is really similar across both the teams. Like, what's the current status of the people who are winning? Where are we now? And what's the gap between those two things? And by the time we make it there, how much extra would they have found? So you're not just looking for the performance gap, you're looking for the performance gap plus X percent. You know, yeah. you're, you're really trying to predict where they're going to be by the time you start to get close to them, which won't be where they are today. Uh, and that, for me, is very similar across both sports. I would say it's in two camps. You've got the staff in both sports. If you think about the, the America's Cup, there's a lot more technical staff than there is in cycling. To yeah. that end, you're more likely to find somebody that believes in an idea that you have because there's a bigger pool of innovators. There's a bigger pool of intelligence there that, you that, you know, if I say something or somebody else says something, there's more likely somebody else to go, okay, I think that's a good idea. And then you've got three or four people that are interested in it. And then you can run, you know, does it work feasibility wise for us? Do we have the resource to do it? Is it high value, high return, low value, low return? You know, is it worth doing? And then yeah. you could do a pilot and get it off the ground. If there's only one of you because there's less people in cycling. There's one person banging a drum. Actually, you're a minority and that actually becomes a hard space to then move forward with. You've either got to gather traction or take the ideas to the people who you believe could help you create momentum. Or maybe you've just got to go for it anyway and risk that it won't work. And that's fine also, because if, if we're not willing to fail, then we're never going to innovate. Because there's no, there's no way innovation can look 100%. And then there's the athletes and culturally they're very different. I could say to the sailors tomorrow, okay, I want you to do, I want you to go out today in a pink tutu because it's going to make you 5% faster. And nearly <laughs> all of them would go, yeah, all right, I'll give it a go. Whereas that, that's just not going to happen in cycling. There's a much more rigorous process to how we bring stuff to the athletes and, and the way that it's onboarded and the way that it's communicated. Um, just because from a technical perspective, the sailors are so, are so they've just got much more exposure to rapid innovation because of the nature of the America's Cup. Yes, They're much more yeah. willing to take that risk in a pink tutu tomorrow. For those of us who aren't familiar with cycling as a sport, I think a lot of people see it as a real physically dominated sport. And it's all about training and nutrition and so on. But of course, the equipment side of things is is huge. So when you look to the future... Do you think there'll be more gains made in training science or more gains made in, let's call it equipment science, for want of a better word? I think when we look at the two sciences, you know, you've got equipment and materials in, in both sailing and cycling, uh, and yeah. you've got the physiological aspect. Uh, and that encompasses so, you know, I think we all, I think anybody listening to this will know that encompasses so many different buckets of performance, whether it be training physiology or training science, whether it be environmental sciences you know, whether it be metabolism and nutrition or any of those things. I think moving forward, I think there's a lot of a lot of work to be done in materials and equipment. I, I believe that is on a, a really steep trajectory within the sport of cycling. And I also believe that these cross-pollinated teams like Ineos, where we've got, a, you know, we've got a Formula One team, we've got a sailing team, they give you a lot of power in innovation, especially when it comes to equipment and your technical materials and the way that you can test them the way you can validate models whether it's aerodynamics hydrodynamics and use like machine learning models to to validate and test these hypotheses i do believe that there's a lot of headroom in that side of the sport equally i don't believe we're at a ceiling in physiological sciences i think some of the things that people are doing at the moment 
are very, very smart. I know that some of the stuff we've done this year around some of our uh, endeavours have been has been, have been a new way of thinking. Um, I do believe we keep zooming out, keep drawing in from other sports and being open to different ideas. The more that come in and the more we explore, the, the more we're going to get those marginal gains to, to, you know, to go back to the origins of the cycling team uh, and what it was all built on. Well, look, I don't want you to give any trade secrets away, Ben, but I know that you recently supported Filippo Ghana from the Grenadiers in breaking the one-hour cycling record. So can you outline what that record is all about? and how you guys really approach that from a, an integrated performance program, but also that innovation culture as well? The hour record is the distance that a human can cycle in an hour. And it, it's conducted on a velodrome indoors, so round and round in circles. Uh, for those people who are not familiar with the record or cycling, there's some legalities around the, the bike you can use. It has to be UCI, which is the governing body of cycling, legal. So it has to fit within their, their measurements that they have agreed to within their rules. So, for example, Chris Boardman, up until this year, held the absolute distance record of 56.3k. But that was on a non-UCI compliant bike. So the official record up until this year was held by Victor Campanarts. When I started with the team, my predecessor, Paul Barrett, had started this project. It was in its early conception about how they were going to approach it. And then when I took over Paul, there was a few things at play, mostly to do with the innovation of the, of the bike itself. You know, and if you, if you go onto YouTube or Pinarello or um, any of the social channels involved with that record, you'll see you know, the way that the bike was developed. It was the first 3D printed bike in cycling. Uh, that was UCI approved for a race. And the way that we approached that project was very, very technical, much like the way that you would develop an aerodynamics package for F1 or, the, or a hydrodynamics aerodynamics package for sailing. We had some fabulous partners work with us through that. So we had Pinarello, very forward thinking in their approach and happy to explore a lot. And then we had Nablaflow, uh, we had Cask, BioRacer, Core, SIS. Um, so a whole host of partners that when we put it all out on the table and said, this is what we're trying to achieve. And these are the areas that we're looking at. And this is where we think our big, this is where, this is where we can find meters. All of those partners are like, yeah, what do you need from us? How do we move forward? So not only was it an internal, but for our partnerships team, we ended up with a big step forward. And we, we looked at it in two things. We looked at it in engineering and then physiology. So yeah. if you just think about the general principles of project management, what were our timelines? How feasible were the projects that we saw that sat in those timelines? What was the evidence base to support them? Like how strong do, you know, so not only can we do them, what's the bang for the book? Is it going to give us 50 meters or five? How much is that? How much are those meters worth? You know, so what's the return on investment if we go after them? And how much stress does that give us? And that works across engineering and physiology. So it was a, it was a new bike, it was new wheels, it was a new drivetrain, it was a new skin suit and a new visor to support the existing helmet package that the cask had. We looked at each one of those individually and together as a performance solution. So if yeah. you take one out, what, what happens to the package? And for those people who've seen it, if those who don't, you know, you can see the bike online. It looks very different than some of the bikes that were ridden at the World Championships. You know, so people like Hope have gone for these wide, you know, wide aerofoils, separated airspaces, whereas we went very much down the, the line of very, very narrow, low CDA. CDA is that coefficient of drag. So how much, how much drag do you have for the wattage you're producing in simple terms? In the physiology area, in the training science, 
we were very lucky that we had Dan Bigham, you know, the driving force behind the project. He'd attempted it a few times before. He was the British record holder. He's not a world tour cyclist. So we knew to succeed, you know, he, Victor Campenart's a multiple world champion. So for Dan, who's not a world tour cyclist to beat him, it was going to take a, a lot of thought and a lot of incremental gains in the areas that weren't particularly power. If you look at all of his attempts, he's pretty much doing the same power across all five attempts. What yeah. has changed is the aerodynamics package and the way that he adapted to things like heat, humidity and hydration and fueling. So we really went to town on environmental physiology rather than looking at how do we get in five more watts. Uh, and actually he did the same performance that he did in terms of power for his British record as he did. And, you know, he, he put 500 meters into Victor Campanar. So that is a true innovation. It's, it's yeah. a study in innovation. It's basically saying, we're not going to do any more power, but we're still going to beat you because yeah. we're going to find all the areas in which you didn't look at rather than just producing power as a world tour cyclist. And then equally, you know, we did the same with the bike rather than looking at what everybody had done before we moved away from that. You know, just take the tires, for example, with Conti. Uh, I think it's well known that everybody rides the track on tubular tires and we rode it on tubeless. So yeah. it's only a matter of time now before the whole track world are on tubeless tires because the rolling resistance game. It was a zoom out project and then coming back onto the things that made the biggest differences and making sure we did them really well. And we did it with Dan behind closed doors. We were successful. We did it with Dan in real time. Officially, he was successful. And then we took all of those learnings and we gave them to one of the most powerful men on the planet, which is Philippe Organa. And then he exceeded Chris Boardman's unofficial record, which is just monumental. So, yeah. you know, I mean, for me, it was humbling to be part of that project, to project manage it and look at all the different variables and then watch a guy go out and do something that, you know, nobody's achieved before ever, even on a, even on a illegal bike. It was really humbling to watch all that come together. Yeah, no, it was incredible to watch it live. Um, and as you said, Ben, that was that was true innovation at work there because you've just really, well, you've just obliterated the record through an alternative way of thinking. <laughs> and in fact, if I was to sum up what we've discussed so far, what I'm hearing from your approach really is, is number one, identify the performance gap and then how are you going to close it? Secondly is you're going to have to challenge the way you think and your assumptions to close that performance gap. And then you also alluded on the role of partnerships. You can't achieve anything in sport working in isolation. You need good people, but you also need good partnerships to come in and give you the expertise. So is, is that a fair summary of, of your approach, do you think? I could have answered it that way much better like you did, but I rattled on for like five <laughs> minutes. But <laughs> no, I think I, I think that's exactly the way I, I would. In fact, I might actually ask for this recording so I can <laughs> repeat that in future interviews because that's a much better way of the way I work. Yeah, I mean, it's, it doesn't mean it's going to be right for everybody. It's the way I approach challenges. I would. Say, it's not the only way I know how to do it, but it's the way that gives me the most zoom out aspect of the challenge ahead. Rather than, yeah. rather than zooming in and focusing on things that could lead you down the wrong path or they're not big enough to make the difference. It's just the way that I approach a challenge and make sure that I don't miss a variable that could have a really big impact. Okay, Ben, final question. Hopefully the astute listeners amongst ourselves will have noticed that your title isn't just head of performance, it's head of integrated performance, which I think is quite interesting because a lot of us who work in sport all believe that it is about integration. So can you summarize or close by some practical tips, perhaps of 
how you bring that integrated performance planning to life so that you do really get those experts around the table working together like you've done so many times in your career? Integrated performance comes in many facets, whether we call it multidisciplinary team working or you know, I think we've just got to really ask ourselves, what does it actually mean? Does it mean that sometimes I work with a physio or, or sometimes I work with uh, a nutritionist? Does that mean integrated performance? I personally don't think it does. I think integrated performance is the behaviours that underpin how we work together and how each deep discipline interdisciplinary team, how, how their system works and knowing where those two systems come together at a, at a sweet spot. So if you think, if, if we just take a, a generic, this is just made up, you know, you've got medical, which should have docs and physios. You've got physiology that have your coaches and S&C coaches and, and potentially end-stage rehab. You've got technical and tactical coaches. It's understanding, for me, what all of those people do and how they optimise the field of performance, whether that's on the water or on the grass or, you know, on the track. And also understanding where they impact on each other. So when you are looking for the integration, it's meaningful and actionable. And the information passage is functional. So I think we all know that information without context is noise. And we're all guilty of recording noise in sport. Things that don't matter, that we don't look at, that we don't use. And we get to the end of the year and you've got an Excel spreadsheet somewhere that nobody's looked at. Where I think integrated performance is really understanding where the spreadsheets are that everybody looks at, that mean something to everybody, and ensuring that that information is communicated effectively to stakeholders and to people on the periphery who need to know. Even take an example of Marcoms. People wouldn't generally say Marcoms is performance other than like potentially the money they bring in. But if we think about a race environment, you've got interviews that take up recovery time. You've got appearances like partnership activations that take up fueling, recovery. It could impact on sleep. You see, you've got all of these things that are really important to what we do because without partners, like you said earlier, we've got a real challenge in sport because they really make the magic happen at the end stage. Equally, if we don't understand how to periodize those, because they do, they, they, there is a sweet spot there. You can either ignore it and lose your athlete in the golden hour of recovery, or you can work with them to periodize that and understand how you get that recovery to them, what it's going to take in terms of logistics, who's going to manage it. And that's integrated performance for me. It's knowing the sweet spot of where interdisciplinary teams come together and ensuring that the information and delivery mechanism of that sweet spot is as good as it can be in sport. And that's what I look for in integrated performance. I look for the sweet spots in multidisciplinary practice and make sure that they're effective. And I don't always get that right. You know, I've done. I've I've had plenty of Montes in my time, but equally, I've had some success where you bring those two elements together, or three, or four, or five. You understand the system of work within each individual one, and create a total system of work where the organisation moves seamlessly forward, or as seamlessly as it can do. No, I think that's a fantastic place to finish, Ben. I mean, there's so so many little nuggets of advice in there that I think anyone in any sport actually can take away and apply in their own practice. So. On behalf of leaders and on behalf of science and sport, thank you for giving up your time today. And pretty sure there'll be a lot of good feedback on this episode. So thanks again. Thanks so much for having me.